Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Wayne Wicker, the Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of ICMA Retirement Corporation, an asset manager that oversees $50 billion across more than a million retirement accounts of city and county public sector employees throughout the United States. Before joining ICMA in 2004, Wayne had a distinguished career as an allocator and manager 
starting as an allocator at the corporate pension fund of Dayton Hudson, now Target Corporation, in the 1980s, and Howard Hughes Medical Institute Endowment in the mid-1990s, after which he moved to direct investing in large-cap growth equities for seven years at Cadence Capital Management in 1998. Our conversation covers Wayne's career path, multi-asset investing, and the ins and outs of managing defined contribution plans as a fiduciary and as a business. We discuss asset allocation strategies, regulatory limitations, stable value products, retirement shortfall risks, active versus passive on large pools of capital, and managing internal and external teams. This episode took place at a recent institutional investor conference for corporate funds and insurance portfolios, with the core discussion about ICMA occurring in front of a live audience. Please enjoy my conversation with Wayne Wicker. Wayne, it is great to see you. Nice to see you today. Let's just start with your background. How did you first get into the investment business? Ted, I've always had a real strong uh, appreciation for what's going on in the stock market. Uh, I think I started out by my first 100 shares of Boeing stock when I was in seventh grade. Oh, so you were one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that from uh, uh, my family upbringing. My parents were professional musicians. Oh, really? And, and I was pretty industrious and had a lot of lawn uh, mowing jobs, and I'd accumulated some money. And uh, one one day I went to my folks and said, I'd like to buy some stock. And my mom and dad didn't know how to do that because musicians don't have that kind of money and that's not their focus. And so they linked me up with an elderly gentleman who was a, an old-fashioned stockbroker at a firm called Burr Wilson, which was headquartered out of San Francisco, and they sent me down to his offices. And this were in days where they still had a ticker tape in the front uh, lobby. And he gave me my choice. I had about $900, and I could buy one local stock, which was Boeing, or another stock, which was Pacific Car and Foundry. Well, I bought the 100 shares of Boeing and uh, held on to it for many years, and it helped ultimately uh, to pay my freshman year's tuition. So I originally went to school and at the University of Washington and picked up a degree in marketing and finance out of the University of Washington. My fifth year, though, I decided to go an extra year because I love journalism. I, I love communications and advertising. I ended up going a second, uh, second degree. And at the end of those two years, decided to go to work for, of all places, the Boeing Company and spent a couple of years there because I knew that in those days to go to business school, I always knew you had to work before going to business school. And, and then an MBA was uh, the real next step into trying to get into a Wall Street position. And so I worked for a couple of years to build up some capital and ultimately ended up going uh, back uh, to school uh, to get my MBA. So coming out of MBA... What then? So I was um, ultimately I I was successful in getting a position with uh, the firm American Express Asset Management, and uh, they were going to move me to uh, the Shearson office into a new program, management training program in New York, which I thought was great. And gosh, about I don't know about a month before I was supposed to start, it was May. I get a call from the HR folks, and they said, you know, Wayne, we just acquired this new organization called IDS Financial Services, and there's this gentleman by the name of Harvey Golub, who's going to be the CEO. Harvey's going to be uh, taking some of the MBAs that we've recruited, and he's going to start the same kind of rotational program in Minneapolis, and you're going. That wasn't my <laughs> game plan. Uh, I had to look at a map and say, really, Minneapolis? Uh, because I originally was from the West Coast. I thought, well, 
Okay. So that summer I moved to Minneapolis and, and started at IDS Financial Services. It was an interesting time there, though, because IDS was going through some transitions, obviously being newly acquired and cultural changes. And there were a lot of uh, defections and bringing in new people. Harvey Gala was really changing things up. And so about a year into that role, uh, I was supposed to move into a research position, equity research position. And uh, Mike Dukar, the uh, research uh, director at the time, said, I'm not taking any new uh, MBA types uh, here. And so I thought, boy, I really need to figure out a different avenue. And about that time, there was a firm in town, uh, no longer in existence in its former form, called Dayton Hudson Corporation. Sure. I was uh, an old line retailer, and uh, they were looking for an investment analyst. And I looked at at that job, and uh, I went over, and I applied, and I talked to these folks. They said, yeah, we're looking for somebody to help run uh, the pension fund, along with this other individual. And I said, well, you know, showing my naivety, that's not a real investment job, but it might be something that bridged the gap until I can get back to the West Coast. But ultimately, it turned out to be probably the best investment job I ever had. So in the following 10 years, that was such a progressive organization. And at age 28, 29, I had the ability to be leading the charge uh, for both the pension fund and savings plan, investing in a range of things back in the 1980s and early 90s that you know were probably on the forefront at the time, investing in timberland and investing in timberland, not just domestically, over in down in Chile, over in New Zealand, investing with folks like Sam Zell in distressed real estate, guys like Lou Saunders, who was uh, the epitome of value investing, having a very deep relationship with folks like that. Quant investing uh, was uh, something that wasn't uh, really well known at the time, but uh, we had the opportunity to work with folks like Battery March. So it was a very broad-based role, and I ultimately became, after my boss was uh, promoted into a shareholder uh, relations person, a staff of one following 14 asset classes. It was the best education. How big was the pension fund at the time? So our pension fund was about a billion dollars, and our savings plan was uh, similar in size. And then we had a, the Dayton Hudson Foundation. And so so there was a, you know, for the time, that was a reasonably good size uh, pool of assets. How did you learn about the business as a staff of one or starting with two? Boy, you know, sometimes you just get lucky. And this was one of those times I was very lucky because not only did I work for a gentleman who was very bright, a guy by the name of Jim Ackman. Jim was a CFA and was really somewhat introverted, but a really quantitative and thoughtful individual. I had board an investment committee that was extremely progressive for a a number of retailers who represented a number of the operating subsidiaries, including what remains today, which is Target Corporation. I think there were five people on that uh, committee. Four of them all were Baker Scholars, and the other uh, was uh, in the first class of women to graduate from Stanford Business School. So those five people, you could talk to them about multi-period immunized bond portfolios, and even though they were retail executives, they pretty much picked up on it within three to five minutes. Very, very progressive. And I think they felt like they were going to give Jim and I enough uh, latitude to kind of go as far as we could. The third leg of the stool is, you know, someone who you know, which was brought in by the board to uh, help kind of oversee some of what we were doing, which was a gentleman by the name of Dick Jensen. 
And Dick was running uh, First Bank Systems uh, Trust area there. It was brought in by the Dayton family to help provide a professional, you know, an outside uh, professional view of some of the activities we were doing. And as time progressed, it really became Dick and I as a team evaluating lots of things. And I used him as a sounding board, and I learned so many things from Dick over the years. So, so that combination uh, really worked very well to uh, you know, accelerate me up a learning curve over a decade there. So at that point in time, you've spent 10 years, Dayton Hudson, now Target. What were the key investment lessons you took away from that time? I would say the biggest investment lesson I uh, learned was you don't have to be dramatic in some of the bets you take to win over time. And the lesson uh, was really crystallized for me in uh, the 1987 crash that occurred where one of the dynamic strategies that we were using was a tactical asset allocation. And uh, we had internal models that Jim had built and I was following. And we used derivative overlays on the entire uh, core of the pension fund. Now, in the uh, summer of uh, 1987, interest rates were rising, but the stock market was rising even further. So we made a decision because we felt that the spread between the 30-year treasury and the S&P was wide enough that our model was suggesting we go full-on into uh, treasuries uh, at that time. So we took a 100% hedged exposure against equities and in the core of the portfolio, so about 50% of the pension fund. And for the months of September and the beginning of October, that was a very painful trade as uh, bonds are selling off and stocks are rising. And then October 19th came, and I think we made 1,700 basis points in a day which was great. You know, the Wall Street Journal highlighted us on their front page. And, you know, we got a lot of recognition for that. But in retrospect, I think after we walked through that, we thought, you know, we can narrow those bands. We can win and play another day. Uh, We don't need to take that kind of risk. So I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned there. How'd you decide to move on from there? There were some changes that were occurring at Target Corporation. The uh, CEO, Ken Mackey, was essentially moved out of that role. I had an office not that far from Ken's on the same floor. He was uh, moved out, and another gentleman came in as a CEO. The individual that I had reported to was asked to uh, move out of the organization, and I had a pretty great relationship with him, even though he wasn't any longer involved on the investment side. And about the same time, I got a recruiting call uh, that said, you know, we'd love to have you come to Washington to think about uh, working for a firm there. I said, great. I'm from the Seattle, Washington area. He said, no, wrong Washington. (laughs) So this is Washington, D.C. And they said the firm is Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And I had never heard of Howard Hughes Medical Institute, but Like Howard Hughes, it flies below the radar screen, and it turned out that it was a wonderful place. It was the second largest medical foundation in the world besides Burroughs Welcome. They were running everything internally at the time. It was about, I think at the time, it was about 11 billion, 10 or 11 billion dollars. And the new CIO there was looking for me to come in to help him restructure that pool of capital, to diversify it so that we had a combination of internal and external exposures and then build out the hedge fund side of things. And so I went there on a three-year deal, and at the end of the three years, the institute had agreed, you can either stay on or we'll help support you find another CIO role somewhere. 
Sounds like a great call option to me. And so that's what happened. And so what were the key differences when, you, when you're overseeing corporate pension and now you move to a hospital endowment structure? So as a medical research organization, uh, Howard Hughes uh, was really run as a pure endowment. So you didn't have liabilities in the same manner that Target Corporation or Dayton Hudson had. So we didn't have to have actuarial assumptions. I don't think that we had the same types of liability payouts. You know, we, we were responsible for making sure that uh, we were able to provide grants of about 4 to 5% a year. And for those that know about Howard Hughes Medical Institute, if you're in medical research, to get a grant and become an investigator at Howard Hughes is like hitting the lottery. And it's a great organization uh, for what it does. And so we were really just responsible for building up the corpus of uh, that uh, capital in order to sustain all these investment research projects throughout the country. I think that in addition to that, the type of investment committee that uh, we worked with was very different than internal uh, corporate executives. Here we had a very select number, maybe three folks on the investment committee, folks that, Ted, you know, and David Swenson, who was there from Yale. Uh, We had the CIO uh, from General Motors and the former CIO at uh, IBM. So there we had a very decentralized focus on that. And I think it provided us with greater latitude to explore some of the things that I think we ultimately put into place in terms of balancing out some of the risks that you have when everything is managed by a centralized pool of portfolio managers. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic where, on the one hand, if you just looked at assets and liabilities, you could say, okay, at the corporate pension fund, you have actual rate of return, but maybe that was, I don't know what it was at the time, six, seven, eight percent. The hospital is spending five percent. So yeah, there's a difference. But how much of the what drove the difference in the investment profile came from the structure and how much came from kind of, as you intimated, a difference in the understanding of the governance board? I think it was a blend. I I think that we were always on the hook, and because you had corporate shareholders with the pension fund, to make sure that you were trying to hit that actuarial assumption and to make sure that uh, those liabilities were paid off at the uh, lowest cost. Howard Hughes Medical Institute, you didn't have that same kind of pressure. It's a, it's a private organization. Heck, the, you know, the neighbors around the neighborhood didn't even know what this uh, place was. And so you really just reported into a, while well, we had the investment committee, then you had a, a larger board. And uh, they ran that in a much more closed-end fashion. So there wasn't the same kind of pressures, in my opinion, that you had to hit these liability payments every year. You knew you had to be fulfilling grants, but there was a pretty significant pool of assets there to do that. And so how did that translate into what you could do, let's just say, on the margin? I mean, the asset allocation structure could have been somewhat different. Mm-hmm. But what, what's an example of something that you did or could do that you don't think you would have been able to do in your days at Dayton Hudson? Yeah, so the first thing is we had a lot more resources there. So I went from being really a staff of one to a staff uh, fully staffed of equity uh, analysts and and, uh, PM 
and then on the uh, fixed income side, a uh, fixed income staff of three and, uh, and a, a PM in Ellen Sapphire. And then we had some folks that did real estate ultimately and hedge funds. And How big was that total team of investment professionals? Gosh, you know, Ted, I would say that we probably had 20, 25 people. And those were the days where before you had so much electronic information, we had a dedicated librarian staff of three people just in this think tank library that would get you any research report, annual report, whatever you wanted. So so there were lots of resources available that, you know, I probably never would have dreamed of at uh, Target Corporation. So that allowed you to not only have uh, greater access to you know, some other folks to talk things over with. But it also give, gave you the ability to, because we ran so much money internally, to develop certain strategies like hedging that you could do internally, you know, trading uh, uh, futures and, and that type of thing, which obviously I was not set up to do uh, at Dayton Hudson Corporation. Yeah. So you stay at Howard Hughes for a little while, and now, now you have the opportunity to be the CIO <laughs> somewhere. What was that next transition like? So, so I didn't go become a CIO somewhere. I, I uh, ended up at the end of my three-year period of time deciding that while it was a really great run, it was time for me to move on. And there was a firm up in Boston by the name of Cadence Capital. And when I was at uh, Dayton Hudson Corporation, I was basically either the first or the second client that Cadence ever had. We gave them $10 million, and they were being funded initially through uh, PIMCO, and uh, they were built out of the PIMCO brand. The gentleman who ran Cadence and had started it uh, was a guy by the name of Dave Breed, and Dave had given me uh, an offer that I couldn't refuse. He said, uh, you know, why don't you come up here? Uh, I want you to follow uh, two or three different areas. You're going to do telecom, and you're going to do newspapers, and you're going to do, you know, some other technology fields, and I'm not going to be around for a long period of time, and so, you know, ultimately, I think that you'll probably take on one of the portfolios, and uh, it's yours to lose. Now, when somebody says it's yours to lose, I have to think really hard why I shouldn't go do this. So I moved up to Boston with Cadence, and as Dave promised, he stepped back from the business within a couple of years, and I was assigned uh, the lead uh, portfolio position to run the large cap pool of assets. And we were more of a boutique. I mean, we were about $6 billion in assets, and uh, the large cap uh, um, PIMCO Capital Appreciation Fund and the separate account management uh, accounts that we had, which were all institutional, it was about two and a half billion of that six billion, and uh, so I gave up some of my research responsibilities to uh, the other analysts that we brought in, and spent all my time over the next seven years really focusing on the capital appreciation fund. And you know, along the way, there were a couple of bumps like. You know, PIMCO was acquired by Allianz, and so uh, we became even a smaller uh, component of, of that whole uh, uh, bottom line for them. But uh, it was a great run. I really enjoyed my time there. And ultimately, I left Cadence with the suggestion of uh, a recruiter up there that came down to uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, they said, we want you to talk to ICMA Retirement Corporation. And I said, well, that's not an asset management firm. Isn't that a not-for-profit organization? And I kind of knew them because uh, we had sub-advised assets in the mid-cap space for those guys. I said, but 
I'm not quite sure that's the role for me. I really like uh, running portfolios. And the recruiter said, well, you know, why don't you just spend a day? It's just a day. New CEO is uh, in place, and she's building out a new C-suite of folks, and she really needs somebody to build out the investment team. And what, what do you have to lose? And so I said, fine. I flew down, and I met with uh, Joan McAllen, who at the time was the CEO, and she was a very progressive woman. And I really liked the concept that she said, you know, I need you to think about how you would build this pool of assets out. So it was an organization that it's a not-for-profit that was initially established to help city managers run their 401 and 457. So just public SA. sector. Yeah, just public yeah. sector. Think of it as similar to what TIA does for college professors. We were founded by the Ford Foundation just like TIAA was. And their role as college professors, ours was uh, city managers. And we've subsequently, over the 45-year period, broaden that out to uh, really serve not only the public sector, but we are now branching into investment only on the private sector for some of our products. But it was a really great mission. I really liked the, the folks that uh, she was bringing in. Uh, I mean, I thought that she really had gotten it in the fact that here this was a not-for-profit organization, but she was bringing in all Fortune 500 executives uh, to run this pool of assets. You know, the head of sales was coming out of my old alma mater at IDS American Express. They'd brought in somebody from a large insurance company as a CFO, and then they brought in the compliance folks from uh, Frank Russell. So it was all people that I thought uh, had a lot of integrity and knew, very experienced. And so uh, when I arrived, it was about $13 billion in assets. We had roughly 12 folks on the team. But it was a different kind of job than what I did at Cadence. You know, it was, we were now managers of managers. We were overseeing the types of portfolios that I had previously run. And so it, it's a different skill set once again, right? I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. All right, Wayne, before we get too far down the road, I really want to dive in on a bunch of uh, allocation topics, manager selection topics, lessons learned. But we're going to take that to the live production. So we'll, we'll cut that here and, uh, and jump into our live show. Terrific. Thanks, everyone, for coming so Wayne and I spoke a little bit earlier. If you've listened to the podcast at all, I typically go through someone's background, and, and, and we did that and recorded it. 
so we're just going to dive right into the investment part. And so, so Wayne, I want to. You're the CIO of ICMA Retirement. Uh, what does ICMA stand for? So uh, ICMA stands for International City Managers Association, and uh, we're the retirement arm for uh, essentially thousands of people all over the country that are uh, international city managers and public employees. So uh, the District of Columbia, where we are today, they happen to be a client of ours. And we focus exclusively on defined contribution plans and uh, helping those employees manage their retirement funds. So when you have such a diverse array of people that you're helping, how do you think about setting investment objectives? So it's a little, you know, it's fairly simple, actually. And I think we could probably thank the folks at Morningstar to a certain extent for that, Ted, because uh, given the fact that uh, we have such a wide number of uh, of participants, uh, you know, it really is uh, something that you need to be able to provide education in a straightforward manner for people of various degrees of sophistication when it comes to investments. And so when I came in back in 04, we decided that uh, one of the best ways to do that was not to think about funds relative to their Lipper universes, but to think about them in terms of Morningstar style boxes, in terms of a way to convey that. Because for retail investors, and Morningstar spent so much money on that education process, putting our uh, product lineups within those style boxes seemed like the most efficient way to convey different types of uh, strategies. So are you necessarily confined to public markets, kind of equities and fixed income? I would say that in the broad array of what we're doing today, currently, that would be the case. We do have our corporate balance sheet where we go in different directions, but we really spend uh, most all of our time publicly talking about what we're doing with the uh, uh, milestone funds. Okay, so your background before doing this, you started on the corporate pension side, you worked for a long time for Howard Hughes Hospital Endowment before going into the direct side. Does it frustrate you? to have a more finite universe of investment options for your constituents? (laughs) Uh, I would say that, is it frustrating? Uh, I would say it's a different set of challenges. And recently we went from being a 40X structure to one that is uh, more into uh, collective investment trusts. And I would say that that gives us a number of freedoms that we did not have when we were in a 40X format. But, uh, you know, ironically, I think that I actually was uh, the the most attractive candidate for this job back in 2004 because I came to them and said, you know, you're pretty black and white in terms of your asset allocation here. It seems like you should have some alternatives. And uh, the CEO said, great, put them in. And then I met the SEC. (laughs) (laughs) And 14 years later. So, So, well, let's talk about some of the constraints in that structure. Mm -hmm. What's your view on active versus passive? I used to have uh, discussions with one or two of my board members that uh, have a very strong focus on passive. And he said, well, you know, Wicker, you're an active guy. You know, you ran active strategies all throughout your career. You know, you focused on alpha. So I'm the passive guy, and I want to have this argument with you on which is better, passive or active. And I... In the role that I play here, we offer both active and passive within our product lineups, and I think they both serve a purpose. And you know, you can you can get a lot of cheap exposure in, in certain uh, asset categories, and I think that's probably really beneficiary, especially in an industry where cost containment is critical. 
But then there are areas where I believe active management can certainly add value on top of that. And what are those? Let's see. I think in the, in the past year, just about every category, right? But over the last five years, hardly any categories. And so I think they run in cycles. I think recently we introduced a uh, emerging markets fund. Uh, it took us a little while to get the structure put into place uh, because of some of the things that are unique in emerging markets and clearing. But that is an area that certainly we believe that uh, active has an advantage over passive. I think that in the fixed income arena, we certainly believe that uh, you can add value regardless of the mandate in the active space there. And I think that we found that there are some some ways that and strategies that we have even in conventional asset categories where just because of the dynamics of the industry, there is an embedded opportunity for alpha. How do you think about your manager selection process? I've changed the way we think about it at the vantage point funds versus when I was, say, at Target Corporation or when we were at uh, Howard Hughes Medical. And the fact that there we looked at the portfolio in totality. Here, where we have essentially 33 different funds, and I think we have 59 mandates uh, populated within those 33 funds, we think about it differently because each one of them have a style box in which they have to uh, work within. So when we think about portfolio construction, it's not whether or not I can blend large cap and small cap growth and value as much as really... How are we going to get the most efficient combination of managers in a particular style box and stay within that style box uh, over longer periods of time, which is maybe one of the more frustrating components of uh, managing to a Morningstar uh, protocol. So what you're really talking about is controlling certain risks. And if that's the case, how do you think about doing that with an external manager as opposed to having an internal team where you can day-to-day monitor those risks and make sure that you're sort of staying within the the sidelines of the football field. Yeah. So it's a really good point that you raise. And uh, I would say that you're right. With internal management, you do have the ability, if the risk team comes and says, you know, this factor is too heavily weighted or you're light in this area, you, you can do things to change that. In the situation we find ourselves most of the time, however, you find yourself in a period where you were relying on underlying sub-advisors to stay within those uh, areas that you've designed for them. Now, you provide them with enough latitude in their guidelines, and over a period of time, you may have to be able to shift. But one of the frustrations I found with SEC guidelines was you have those guidelines, and you are really tied to that. The uh, 40 Act Board will really hold your feet to the fire that you cannot violate some of these very narrow bands that they have. So... One of the things we've done, we've broadened the bands. I think our, our board has become more sophisticated over time to appreciate that you need greater flexibility. And so I applaud the support we've gotten from the organization in that regard. And I think that while we don't make wholesale changes, there are times where you have to tilt uh, from one uh, to another. And the beauty of the way we design these funds, they're multi-managed. So you'll have anywhere from two to four managers in any particular fund. And so while they all may follow the same style category in general, they all do it differently, and therefore their characteristics will be different. So one of the things everyone here wrestles with is this notion of governance and how do you put your best investment ideas forward without the higher-ups getting in the way, for lack of a more genteel way of saying it. 
How does that work in your organization? So I think we've made great strides over the last 18 months by demutualizing and going to the the CITs, where you have one less regulatory body that uh, you have to deal with. You know, in my former life, for many years, I reported to three boards. I reported the corporate board, the trust board, and our 40 Act board. So now we have our trust board and our corporate board. And by the way, our investment committees for those two organizations work together now. And so uh, I think that they've provided greater fluidity for us to, A, communicate with them, and B, I think that there is a greater appreciation that, given the track record we've been able to develop over 10 to 15 years, that, uh, you know, they want to provide greater support in that regard. So what if you looked at each of these regulatory bodies that the SEC and whoever else has a say in what you're doing? What are the constraints that they impose when it comes to making investments? Well, I think right off the bat, one of the things that becomes an impediment is if it isn't from a pricing perspective, if you don't have daily pricing, that's a real problem. Even for very, what I would say, low-risk assets uh, and, for instance, stable value. Stable value is a, a non-registered product, very low risk. We would love to use it. We couldn't use it when the SEC changed regulations back in 05, but now that we are a CIT, we're going to reintegrate that as a substitute for bonds and reduce the amount of duration risk in the portfolio. Stable value meaning what? Like what there can't be priced daily? So stable value has an, ins- has an insurance wrapper uh, associated with it. So it smooths the uh, valuations uh, over longer periods of time, the duration of the uh, portfolio. And so it provides a very stable crediting rate, but it's only uh, published once a month. So I know that periodically you and your team create market outlooks. In the last 10 years, I have yet to see a market outlook that didn't say equities are expensive and are not going to meet actuarial rates of return. We all know what bond yields are. I suppose your market outlook is in the vicinity of the same thing. One of the things, we we talk about uh, market outlook, and I think one of the areas that I find really interesting right now, regardless of where current valuations are, if you look back at a histogram, we have a histogram that I showed uh, our our boards a couple weeks ago that was produced by uh, Strategus, and they showed annual returns since 1926. It showed that 74% of the time, equities are positive. 59% of the time, equities provide investors with greater than a 11 to 40% rate of return. And so, you know, given the fact that we are looking at time horizons for individuals, even with a target date fund of 2055, we have a pretty long time horizon. And so we don't get as caught up in relative valuations uh, this quarter versus next. We watch that. You know, I'm totally amazed at uh, where earnings growth rates are for the first quarter now that we've reported everything. But we really take a much more secular viewpoint on how we think about uh, asset allocation. How do your constituents respond to performance? So I think not any different than most of the folks in this room that have a defined contribution plan. I think that... So they uh, fire you right after you perform poorly? <laughs> they were... <laughs> well, I don't see it quite that way, but, uh, you know, I, there's always roll-ins and rolls out. So uh, often that happens. But, but I do think that uh, in defined contribution plans, people tend to have a longer time Uh, focus. Or maybe it's the fact that they just are busy and they don't take time to to make changes very often. 
Often that works to their advantage if they're in equities. It may work to their detriment if they are risk averse and they're in, say, our stable value fund that's yielding about 235 for a decade. So I don't think that we see quite as much of that. Where you do see it, periods of great volatility in a very short period of time. Our call centers will be overwhelmed for about a week and then it dies down. And our call centers do a fabulous job of you know, making sure that they provide that information. But for the most part, we don't see a lot of transition in or out of funds. We have seen recently, with markets up dramatically last year, a move into equities and out of stable value to a certain extent. So. If you use 2008 as a case study, mm-hmm. what actually happened? If you, if you Just an aggregate of your aggregate assets and the movements of your clients. We saw a massive shift out of equities into stable value. You know, our stable value fund ranks uh, number one for one, three, five, ten years, and that goes back for a long period of time. So it's, a, it's one of our flagship products. It has extremely low risk. If, we, if you looked at uh, the rest of our funds, we actually did really well relative to our peers. But really well, when you're down 20%, doesn't feel so, so great. So we saw a huge shift. And in fact, between 2008 and probably 2011, uh, we saw about uh, $5 billion shift from equities into uh, stable value, which doubled the size of our stable value fund. So in the structure of 401k plans, effectively... You don't tend to see the mass withdrawals that you would from, say, an institutional manager or a long-only manager like in your past. But you still have this behavior of, of kind of doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. How do you educate or try to educate your investors to stay the course? I mean, their money's not going anywhere, right. and yet now they've rotated out of equities right after the crash. So we have a benefit that a lot of organizations don't, certainly my former firm didn't have, in the fact that we've got over 200 people out in the field, and their job full-time is to be out uh, working with our participants. So they do a really great job, along with our financial planners that are also out in the field, that will do, uh, incidentally, uh, financial plans for free for our participants, to uh, provide them with a lot of education. And since we serve the public sector, you know, you have people in the firehouses for all three shifts, for instance, all night long in the city manager's office. Uh, They have a dedicated office where people can make appointments and go in. We have a lot of things that we shoot out through the website uh, that are white papers with thematically, it's time in the market, not timing the market that is important. So I think that our investor population was pretty well equipped to deal with that frightful time back in 08, 09. But they still kind of did the wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> but not to the magnitude I think that uh, you know a general retail investor might have done. Sure. While people did move to stable value, it wasn't everybody on one side of the ship. So now you're at the cusp of, from a regulatory perspective, having the ability to broaden out 14 years later into something else, alternatives. What's the next step? We can't talk about that yet. So it's to be continued. But we have a lot of things that we're working on at the moment. There's little steps that you're taking. We're seeing things like, as I mentioned earlier, we're putting stable value back in as a bond substitute. Uh, We think this is a really great time to have stable value 
uh, whether it's in your target date funds or in other balanced uh, portfolios, only because as interest rates are rising, you don't have that impact of duration in stable value that you have in intermediate bonds. But we will be doing a few other things as well over the the coming uh, uh, months that I think are going to help diversify the return sources that we have in our target date uh, funds. What's the most challenging aspect of your life these days? I think probably, you know, our team is growing. And when I started uh, at this firm, I think we had $13 billion and uh, I think I had 12 people on my team. Total assets, AUM of the firm, including administrations, about 50 Five billion today. Uh, we're running uh, more like 36 billion. We've tripled the size of the team that I have there, and we're still growing. And so, identifying talent, trying to get them acclimated, making sure that we are retaining a lot of the you know knowledge uh, that uh, we've built over a long period of time. Uh, you know, the average tenure on my team is you know double digits. So we don't have a lot of turnover, but we have a lot of growth. And yeah. so that's always a challenge. I want to turn a little bit to the broader issues of pensions in the country. From your lens, do you see a looming crisis? So uh, I would say that uh, in the days when I was responsible for a pension fund, uh, like many people here in this room, you know, the investment business was, I think, easier. You know, there were a lot better ways to create alpha. There were a lot of things that people weren't doing that today really hard net of expenses to generate an outsized rate of return. I mean, uh, you're not going to be investing in timberland in New Zealand and expecting 18 to 20% net of fees. So when everything is compressed because of the uh, low interest rates that you referenced earlier, I think that uh, trying to hit those actual actuarial rates are a real issue. And now that people have uh, also de-risked a little bit, I'm going to be interested to see as rates rise what the psychological impact of that is as they see uh, the bond portions of these portfolios getting hit on a price side, even though they've, you know, uh, met with their liability stream there. And then on your side, as your financial planners work with your the underlying employees, how do they plan out if the numbers don't add up? Well... The beauty in the public sector for, especially if you are a mid-level or older employee or participant, um, in the public sector, many uh, of these individuals also have a uh, defined benefit plan. And so what we have found when we've modeled out uh, for our uh, target date funds is that um, for the mid to older components of the population, they have a pretty good safety net behind them. And so it's only the younger uh, generation, you know, probably employees under the age of 25 or 30, for many of these uh, municipalities are not going to have the benefit of that DB. Those are the ones that I think our financial planners have to spend more time educating. But the difference, I think, today versus, say, 15 years ago with the introduction of target dates, you know, even if a young participant has no clues what they want to do, the target dates can provide a pretty good asset allocate, one-stop shop. Not different than, uh, you know, what I think you know risk baseballs used to do. How far along are we in the evolution of the defined benefit assets, sort of potentially falling short of the liability? So, as you laid that out for individuals, there's an assumption 
that the defined benefits will be there when the time comes. And a lot of times we hear that, you know, that isn't going to happen one way or the other, particularly in the public sector. And so how do you think about that sort of existential risk of, well, the financial plan's in place, we know what the benefit is, therefore these people are going to be fine when they retire if 10 or 15 years from now all of a sudden the assets aren't of the size they need to be to meet those liabilities. Well, I think there is a difference between the public sector and the private sector in that regard. Uh, you know, uh, the private sector, obviously, you as the shareholder and the uh, management team are on the hook for any liabilities that are there. In the public sector, I think that the backstop would probably be, as little as any of us would like it, higher taxes uh, to pay that liability, right? So I think that in, in that regard, there's a real difference between a private sector DB plan and a public sector DB plan. You know, I used to have a, it wasn't the highest opinion of some of the guys that were involved in the public sector defined benefit uh, business. 30 years ago, I thought, well, I don't think that guy's that bright. Today, uh, I would say when you go and talk to, we all as taxpayers should be really encouraged because uh, when you go to talk to most of the leaders on the very large state pension funds today, those guys are really smart. And so I'm really encouraged when thinking about the public DB sector, for instance, that the level of talent that they've been able to attract is kind of blows your mind. I live in the state of Virginia. I would tell you that uh, that's one of the most sophisticated investment teams. I don't care who you're going to compare them to. Those guys uh, are really strong. And I, I can name a, a dozen guys like that I've met uh, throughout the country. So Why do you think that's changed? Because the, the common... The common meme is that the public sector investment jobs pay so much less than the private sector jobs that not only can you not get the talent, but they're massively under-resourced in doing research. I think that a lot of these guys are mission-centric, kind of the same mission-centric feel I have for the role I play at ICMA Retirement Corporation. But you get a lot of guys there that, whether it's a guy like Gary Brubaker in the state of Washington or the folks here in Virginia, man, they... They are on it. So they're willing, to, they're willing to live in other places, whether it's in Richmond, Virginia, Olympia, Washington. Cost of living is lower. And the quality of life they have, I think, is a perfect trade-off for having a really great opportunity to work with huge amounts of money that they might not otherwise have that opportunity to do. How do you address manager selection differently when you have bounds on sort of regulatory oversight and other factors from earlier in your career where you were a little bit less constrained? So I think that looking at managers are, it's not that much different in my mind. I think you're looking for the same things regardless of what pool of assets you're going to run. You're looking for guys that over long periods of time have put in a process and philosophy that is going to be repeatable over long periods of time. It won't work every year, but you you think you have a high degree of confidence. So I don't think what we look for in uh, a sub-advisor here is any different than what we would have looked for 20 years ago. We probably are much more sophisticated and have a lot more tools to analyze that to come to the same conclusion. I think what's different today for us, though, is given the fact that in our industry where price compression, pricing has become so significant, one of the things that we think uh, is an advantage for us over smaller uh, uh, providers is our size. So there's a lot of uh, comfort in the economies that we can provide in terms of driving down costs, whether it's asset management, back office, uh, some of those things. 
The downside to that is you probably cut off the bottom end of the types of managers that you can hire in terms of you're not going to give a manager that has 700 million AUM a billion dollars. And we have a lot of billion dollar mandates. So I think that, you know, we have opportunistically uh, been the first guy on the block to hire a manager. We've done that on, on occasion. But I wouldn't say that that's the norm. And I wouldn't say that you can do that for really big mandates. One, we, we pick and choose our spots, right? And you try to add alpha with a slice, but it has to be a big enough slice to make a difference. And you have to have it with enough money that you're able to drive down the, uh, the fees associated with it. So that's the conundrum. And so I don't think that, coming back to your original question, are we looking for things differently? No. What are the signposts of changes that have led you to want to exit manager relationships? There's the obvious ones that everyone here has uh, seen, which is over longer periods of time, they're not living up to expectations. They're not uh, performing in the environments that you thought they'd perform the way you thought they would perform. But I think that as I've gotten on in my career, some of the more subtle things that uh, I look for, I was involved with a firm like this, where all of a sudden uh, there's a buyout that occurs. Or maybe it's a gradual uh, accumulation of wealth. But at some point, you can have uh, a lot of guys in a firm that, you know, they still are pretty passionate, but they're passionate, you know, four days a week. Does that really matter? Because a lot of what you hear is that managers get in their own way. There's too much activity. And now you have this trade-off between very experienced people who now probably have no concerns about financial wherewithal, so they're just in the game for the love of the game. They can invest more money alongside their clients because they've sold a piece of the business, and you got, hey, 80% of their time. So how did you see that deteriorate? It, it's, that's the subtle part of it. It doesn't happen in a quarter. It happens over a two- or three-year period of time, and all of a sudden... You look back and say, these guys used to have a margin in these types of environments of X, and it's now a fraction of that. Why? Well, in this particular case, one of them is spending a lot more time in his alma mater where he wrote a check for $10 million to have a soccer field named after him. Uh, another one is uh, out uh, uh, where he's a, one of three partners at a golf course. So he's probably not there uh, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. Those are the busy days. So he's probably there Tuesday through Thursday. And, uh, uh, but, but it's, uh, you know, this business, as you know, is so competitive that, yeah, there's a balance on, you know, getting in your own way with really keeping your eye on the ball. And I think that, you know, the people that we think are really successful are just as hungry at age 60 as they were at age 40. And uh, those are the guys that uh, we like to align ourselves with. The history would always show that as assets grow, alpha that exists slowly shrinks. Is there an asset size for you at some point in time where you say the optimal strategy to cut costs and get the results you need is just to go passive? Maybe this is where the active bias uh, in certain situations comes into place where I think that the general consensus for, you know, a S&P 500 mandate is go passive. You know, you're never going to add value there. Yet we have a growth and income fund 
who over five and ten year periods of time ranks, you know, in the top 15% and has beaten net of expenses, the S&P 500. So is there a size where I think exclusively going passive is there? I would say that I still feel like, you know, if you structure the portfolio correctly, you can have an edge over long periods of time, not over short periods of time. I think that more and more, however, as we think about net of expense uh, returns to investors, that combination of integrating both passive and active is uh, uh, pretty compelling. And, you know, there's a way to, to get different return patterns out of a, a passive portfolio than just indexing uh, on a market cap basis. So there's different ways to, to achieve that with size, you know, in billion-dollar mandates without completely suggesting that I'm going to be perfectly satisfied with an index-based return less my expenses. So the, the last discussion we were, we were hearing about the use of technology uh, and adaptation of technology and asset management as a disruptive tool. Where are you thinking about how technology will influence how you're investing five, ten years from now? You know, my eyes kind of glaze over when, uh, as we've just shifted into a new risk analytics uh, uh, system, uh, with I, we have someone who's a PhD out of Columbia who runs that thing. I'm the wrong guy to ask about how that is going to work, but I have to tell you that despite the fact that I don't have the acute understanding of you know, how those risk programs are working, I do believe that uh, we are going to have the ability to leverage the output of that to make better decisions in terms of you know, where our portfolios are, the what-ifs on what if we modified the structures of these portfolios based on some of the computing capability that we probably didn't have eight years ago at the firm. I certainly see that as being one of the areas that we will probably spend a lot of time on. I think, you know, as we're building out our internal asset management uh, capabilities, both on the equity and fixed income side, you know, there, especially on the trading side of things, uh, technology is becoming a more and more important piece as transaction costs and impact uh, costs are going to be, I think, a game you're always chasing. How do you balance the internal-external dynamic in that you hire people internally, they're a little bit more embedded, what happens if your judgment tells you, eh, we could do a little bit better externally net of fees than what these guys are delivering for us? Yeah, I think that's always, that's always the dilemma, right, when you have both internal and external uh, uh, management teams. In my uh, experience here, we started out with uh, folks running internal money off our balance sheet. And we watched these guys start this thing in 06, 07, and, you know, uh, about two or three years ago, funded them with much larger components of money, uh, client money, in our stable value fund. You know, it's been a very consistent ride. And so we think that, you know, they're very competitive, especially net of expenses uh, to what you can do externally for fixed income managers because that margin is much thinner, right? On the equity side, that's a harder call, right? Uh, We're running money more on a quant-oriented basis as opposed to the world I grew up in in fundamental analysis and bottom-up stock picking. And so factors are a bigger component of what we're doing there. And I guess the jury's still out. We've been fortunate over long periods of time to have 
identified some really great managers. The average tenure of an external manager for us is over eight years. We haven't had our internal program in place for eight years yet. So we'll have to come back and talk about right. that. So I have one last question for you in two parts. Uh-huh. What's been your greatest success and what's been your greatest failure in your seat the last 14 years? Well, I, I think probably the greatest success is uh, the uh, team I've been able to build. If you'd had the luxury of having the rest of my team up here, they'd probably outshine me uh, uh, in this conversation. You know, they are the ones that have built the results that over the last 10 years, more than 70% of our funds have outperformed peer medians. When you think about how that gets compressed with survivor bias, we think that that's a pretty consistent winning uh, opportunity for our participants. You know, I guess uh, the other part of your question is the area that has been... Where'd you suck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, any given year, I have a lot of answers for you on that, Ted. Uh, so, you know, nothing's ever perfect. I think that for a number of years, we had a growth fund that just couldn't get out of its way. We finally, after four sets of changes in 13 years have a growth fund that I think uh, has started to generate really positive returns, but it was probably the bane of my existence for probably a decade. Yeah. But it's doing really well now. Yeah. All right, we have a little bit of time if there's any questions. Uh, so, Wayne, you mentioned you're going to move into emerging markets. Where will that come from? We initially put emerging markets uh, into our target date funds, uh, and we did it in the form of ETFs while we were building out the uh, structure. And so as part of the broader asset allocation uh, decision we made back in 2014 to add EM uh, to the mix, essentially what we did, we shifted out of those ETFs when we were able to get active in place because we think there is a tremendous opportunity to add value there. And we also added a little bit more uh, from a couple of the other uh, uh, equity sleeves that we had. Wayne, with regards to your younger constituents that don't have a DB plan, what do you think of some of the new products and innovations that can help them meet their retirement objectives? We actually turn that question on its head a little bit. Uh, We do have a lifetime income product. We tend to market it to those that are in their mid to later stages of their uh, career because it has a guaranteed floor, but it has a higher expense ratio because it has an insurance annuity attached to it. For our younger participants, we are very much of the opinion that our target date funds, which we think over the next stage of, uh, of their uh, development, are going to look a lot more like a DB uh, plan. I think if, if our vision comes to fruition over the next uh, couple of years, you'll look at uh, our target date funds, and they will look and feel a lot like different versions of a uh, multi-stage pension fund. Uh, And we think that that's a real benefit for participants to have that ability at at lower price points, which uh, we always pride ourselves on. Wayne, thanks so much. Ted, thank you. All right, Wayne, we're back. Okay. (laughs) It's time to turn to some fun closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment? Favorite sports moment. So... You know, I have kind of a uh, ideology that says I always root for the hometown teams of which I've lived. And so I've lived in four or five. But if I had to pick one, Ted, I'm going to pick two. You know, you're a baseball guy. And so I would say one of my favorite moments was when I was living in Minnesota 
It was game seven of the World Series against the Atlanta Braves, and that game went 10 innings, and the Minnesota Twins won the World Series one to nothing at the end of 10 innings in the Metrodome. What year was that? Was that 1991. Oh, okay. And uh, it was their second uh, World Series uh, title in probably six years. And the Metrodome was kind of a crummy stadium, but because it was made out of like cement on the sides, uh, the crowd noise was unbelievable. And they compared it to a 747 taking off a runway, and they do the meter <laughs> on that. So I would say, you know, that was a pretty uh, thrilling experience. But I have to tell you that, you know, after living in Boston, you know, we follow the Pats at my house as well. And I wasn't at the game, but it's hard to say that uh, watching uh, the New England Patriots uh, come back in the 2016 Super Bowl, 28-3, to my entire family goes to bed and I sit there and watch these guys come back. That was a pretty spectacular comeback yeah. uh, in overtime. So, What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So, you know, I guess uh, from a very young age, both my mom and dad were prof- professional musicians. And uh, ever since I can remember, my father had a very strong work ethic. He worked three jobs. He was a school teacher during the day. He taught private lessons in the afternoon. And he'd work professionally at night. And he's done that ever since uh, I can remember. And, uh, you know, he's turning 91 this year, and he's finally decided that maybe he's going to retire from that last job. <laughs> and so if I guess if there's anything I can take away from uh, the teachings that uh, my folks have given me by observation, I'd say, you know, it's a strong work ethic and perseverance and really doing something you love. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that others might not know about? I would say that, you know, as I told you earlier, uh, I'd gotten a degree in journalism and communications, and uh, so there's never been a newspaper I I don't love. And so if you see my driveway on Saturday mornings, you know, it's littered with the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and Barron's and New York Times. So there's a lot of newspapers, and I think that, I clearly think that you can get a lot of information there. But that's pretty common information. I think the problem people have today, there's so much out there. You got to find out and try to prioritize. And, uh, you know, so I'm always trying to keep something with me all the time because Sir John Templeton, uh, I read a book of his once, and uh, he said that time is so precious that you don't want to waste any, any moment that you can. And so always have something with you to read you know, whether it's between appointments or on the train. Heck, I bring stuff to read at my uh, kid's basketball game at halftime. And I would say, you know, when I'm trying to prioritize, some of the things that I think are most impressive, you know, are uh, some of the things that the folks from Strategus write. Those guys are very, very thoughtful in what Jason Trenard and his team do. They give you a perspective that I don't think you see in traditional sell-side research. And I think I always try to balance that out with, you know, a couple of columnists in the FT, you know, whether it's um, Robin Wigglesworth or John Authors. And, you know, I always think the must-read is the back page of Section 1 of the FT because there's always something there that, uh, as an investor, you're going to learn something on. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? (laughs) Well, you know, this isn't too philosophical, Ted, but I would say, you know, I've always been a pretty disciplined guy when it comes to uh, athletics and working out. And, you know, I, I work out probably seven days a week, and I used to run lots of marathons or triathlons or those types of things. But it was only about 
five or seven years ago when my doctor really asked me about, well, how's your diet and do you get enough sleep? And what I've come to appreciate is diet and rest are probably more important than working out every day. And boy, I wish I would have known that many, many years ago. Uh, that, that One of these days I'm going to learn that lesson <laughs> and adopt it. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> All right, last one. It's your waning days. You are... However many years old, sitting in your rocking chair, thinking about all these amazing experiences you've had, what advice would you give yourself today? I'd say there's probably a couple different categories that you got to think about and be sensitive about. I mean, personally, I think you have to be a, a caring spouse, a devoted parent, you know, a real loyal friend. In the workplace, I really think you have to come in every day with a positive mental attitude and, you know, take on problems and turn them into opportunities. And if you can do that with a smile on your face, that's really important. And you know, and then I watch at a lot of places like uh, the conference we're at today where you've got a lot of pretty important guys running a lot of money. And uh, well, I think it's uh, really nice to be important. I think in life it's really more important to be nice. And I, I think that uh, if more people thought about life that way, it'd be probably a nicer place. Awesome. Wayne, thanks so much. Thanks, Ted. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list. 